This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hello? Hello? Wow, what a turnout. This is incredible. Who knew? I'm Mark Smerling, and I'm Zach Stewart Pontier. Welcome to Crime Town, live. So, we started this sort of in a very organic fashion, and uh, one of the guys we met early on was uh, was Dan Barry, who works for the New York Times, writes for the New York Times, but previously had worked for the Providence Journal, and it was when a Pulitzer Prize there, and he was sort of our consigliere, our guru, and he showed us the way. So, he, and he very nicely volunteered to be the MC tonight, so. You guys have heard enough of us. You don't need to hear us talk anymore. <laughs> we'll be at the end, we'll come back and answer questions, but welcome to the stage, Dan Barry. So let me tell you how I, um came to this. As a young reporter who back then had hair, uh, I, uh, I was working in uh, North Central Connecticut, uh, you know, working for a small newspaper, uh, covering school boards, um, high school graduations, religious cults, you know, as you do. And uh, so I needed to get a job elsewhere. Um, and so I looked to Providence. A friend of mine said um, that it was a reporter's theme park, okay? <laughs> that appealed to me. So um, through some clerical error, I got uh, hired, and, um, and I fucking loved it. <laughs> All right, it was like living in film noir with the Marx Brothers somewhere, do you know what I mean? Uh, even, even the smell of it, you know, you'd smell Narragansett Bay, and there was still just a hint of menace in everything, you know? So I used to ride around in car one. Car one was the car that all the cop reporters shared at the Providence Journal. It was like a a dumpster from a Dunkin' Donuts on wheels. You know what I mean? It was old newspapers and half-eaten bagels, and it had a police scanner. And so you could hear, you know, the miseries of Providence all night. That was my radio, listening to the miseries. And it was always like the sound of the city trying to cough up something unpleasant. And riding around a car one, I would slow down in front of Coinomatic, which was a squat building that was the headquarters for New England organized crime, as we all know, the headquarters for Raymond Ellis Patriarca. And in the afternoon, I'd be riding around, and I'd turn on the radio, and I would hear a talk show. And it was a talk show hosted by a former mayor, a convicted felon, the Buddy Cianci show. So what other city, I don't know what that means. Does that mean this is a city of redemption and of forgiveness? Or is it a city of like, fuck you, this is how we do it. (laughs) That was my welcome 
to Rhode Island. <laughs> Welcome to Crime Town. Should we be like, you've heard us talking now. We wanted, you know, something like that when we're enjoying. We wanted someone much more eloquent. A real journalist with integrity. A man with less hair. Yeah. And a Pulitzer. What the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> hey, Alex. Was this um, part of your vision when you uh, started with the show? Yes, I was like, gangster stage shows, year three, just exactly as I planned. Year three? You thought yeah, it would yeah, take yeah, that long? Yeah. <laughs> They were a little ahead of schedule. <laughs> Bobby Wallace. I saw him. I saw we him. Yeah, sure. Tony Fiore, Brian Andrews, Barbara Roberts, the Dr. Broad, right. Charles Kennedy, the ghost. I'm <laughs> most excited to see him. <laughs> I used to wait tables on Federal Hill, and I've waited on Buddy a bunch of times. And he would sit there for hours and hours drinking Remy Martin and not pay and not tip. I grew up in Ireland. I grew up listening to all this stuff going on with the Tellinghast and Patriarca and all that stuff. It just all came alive to me. Welcome. Enjoy the show. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. So, all you Crime Town junkies, let's see if you recognize this voice. In that day, being a wise guy, was the coolest fucking thing on the planet. There was nothing cooler. Movie stars wanted to be around them. Please welcome Bob Wallison. Let's do this thing. Talk to me, talk to me. All right. <laughs> Mr. Wallison is shy. Hello, all you crime town lovers. I can't believe there's this many in this area. But I love you, eh? So why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, of how you came into this world that we're uh, exploring here tonight? That's a hell of a question, but I'll do the best I can. I came into this world with a mom and dad that couldn't get it together because of drugs, love, and whatever else. Now you're starting to become a teenager, and you got to make decisions. I just decided to take whatever it took to get me what I needed. And I, I, I was a little on the crazy side. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Of course, that'll get you in trouble in this country. You'll end up in jail no matter what age you are. You're, you're about 16 or 17? Actually, I was 15. Holy oh. Jesus. Yeah, I, they kept me locked up for 11 months until I turned 16. When I got back to the ACI realizing mm -hmm. that I'm 16 to stay, I got tough. Well, I got you, real tough. You had, you had to, right? I had no choice. There are so many stories, um, and you tell them so well. Tell us the pool story. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki Bianco, next boss. Next boss. Nikki gets out of Danbury, and he calls for me. Doesn't call me. He calls for me. So the guy says, hey, Nikki wants to see you. You're in, you're in, but don't be late. 
What if I'm late? What's a big deal? It's a big deal. I got there at 10 of 9. His wife answered the door, Francesca, one of the most beautiful women you ever meet. She goes, okay, I'll go get him. He comes and calls for me at 5 past 9. This is my first meeting with a guy who you can't be late with. So he said, okay, um, listen, I brought you here for a couple of reasons, but first thing is the little hand on the 9 and the big hand on the 12 is 9 (laughs) o'clock. So he takes me outside of the gazebo, and he, he gets a stick. He goes, here's what I want you to do for me. I just got in. I want to do work around the house. I want you to make a nice little koi pond for me like this. He draws a nice kidney shape. He's such a perfectionist. So I said, okay, no problem. Where's your shovels? I went and got the shovel. I went zing, 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 zing. Nikki, Nikki. Yeah, it's all done. He said, let me see. You know, I'm probably going to want to put a lot of koi in here, so I'm going to make it a little wider. And he goes around it. I dig it out. You can't, you can't even have an attitude. He's so sharp. You're going to be like, I will dig this for you. <laughs> so I get it done, and he comes back, and you're not going to believe what he did. He says... If I got to dig a hole to put fish in, I might as well dig a hole to put people in. (laughs) I says, yeah. (laughs) He goes, let's dig this. Full-length pool, kidney shape. He said, we're just going to start digging. We'll get it. It'll take some time, but we're not going anywhere. (laughs) I dug and dug and dug and dug. I was even working at night. I wanted to get it done, you know, and I... You don't want to disrespect that guy. No. They got to the point where the, the pool was done. Mm-hmm. was unbelievable. Did you ever swim in that pool? No, I never even went back to the house. <laughs> <laughs> Would you? No. But by the way, we should say that Mr. Wallison is a well-respected, very successful businessman for, what, nearly 30 years now? Yeah, right. So you had a choice. You could have stayed, but you left. So why did you go out? A nine millimeter. Is, is that a program? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I got shot. I got shot through the kidney, through the colon, through the liver, through the intestines, and I'm still here. I don't think there are any other organs left. No, no, they got them all. They got them all. That's what made me do it. Your question was, what made me get out? That makes you get out. Do you miss it? Do I miss the life? Yeah. Well, I got a blonde up there that's so fucking beautiful (laughs) that I wouldn't give her up for anything. Good for you. All right. Mr. Wallison, Bob Wallison, thanks very much. So things were changing after a while. The economic model for organized crime uh, was shifting away at times from bookmaking and loan sharking and all those legitimate, illegitimate ways to make money um, 
to something else. Uh, to set that up, let's see if you recognize this voice. Bucky says, uh, you got any friends that want some cocaine? Next thing I know, I'm buying a scale. And I, I'm going to buy my first kilo of cocaine. My first key was 62500 It was all the money in the world. And I made over 22000 profit on it. It was that easy? Like that? There was no stopping. No stopping. Please welcome Charles Kennedy, a.k.a. The Wolf, a.k.a. The Ghost. Thank you. I'm very humble that everybody is here. It truly is amazing being part of Providence and the dubious distinction of being very corrupt. Well, I helped promote that, that label for many years. So, Charles, you're also shy. Um, yeah. So, uh, you, you grew up in Oakland Beach, um, kind of a middle-class kid, working-class family, right? Very middle-class, blue-collar. Right. Mom right. and dad, strict Irish Catholics. Eat those vegetables. Say right. your prayers at night. Right. And so how did you go this way? Early on, I developed uh, quite an interest in locks, in locksmithing, which would carry on into my youth. As we all do. Yeah. As we are. And one of the earliest episodes that I can remember was um, I had a, a dog, and I was living in an apartment house, that dog's name was Satch. He was a Dalmatian. And I remember coming home one afternoon, late one afternoon, and my first wife comes out and I says, they got Satch. I said, who's got Satch? She goes, animal control. So now I uh, have a formulate a plan of action. I'm going to go to the city dog pound and I'm going to do a jailbreak. <laughs> I got my lock picks and off I go. I'm now at the city door count, and it, there's nobody around. And sure enough, I look in there. There's Satch looking up at me, his little tail's going back and forth. Don't worry, pal, have you out of there in a minute. <laughs> so I, I picked the lock, and I opened the padlock and sprang Satch, and as I'm looking over, there's eight other dogs, and they're on death row, Dan. There's no tomorrow for these guys. My conscience is bothering me so much. You don't believe in capital punishment, do you? No, not at all. <laughs> I proceeded to pick every padlock and spring every dog. I said, go, just get out of here. And unbeknownst to me, somebody took down my license plate. And 15 minutes later, there's uh, three, four Warwick police cruisers outside. And they ring the doorbell, and I go, yes. And they go, Come outside with the dog. Oh, uh, what dog? Don't play games. Get him out here. Uh, I surrendered myself and the dog. They locked me up. They locked Satch up. He's in one car, one cruiser. I'm in the other. He's looking at me. I'm looking at him. And we take, and they bring us to the station. They cuffed his paws behind they, him? He was cuffed. They cuffed and stuffed him. <laughs> so. All right. So you moved on, though, from uh, Canine Escape. So I bet there's a lot of um, moments. Why don't you uh, tell us about the biggest score? It's funny you should bring that up. <laughs> and, and why would that be, Charles? <laughs> Actually, 
23 years ago to this very night in this very city, I stole over $1.1 million out of the back of a trunk of a car. And it was a great night. That was the best I ever had. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> Brooklyn's been good to you. It's been good to me. Tell us a little more about that. This was uh, a car that was parked in front of a, a tenement house. And I'm a pretty good thief, but I don't wear an invisible suit. And there's people coming up and down, up and down the stairs. I said, man, you know, uh, this is going to be difficult. I did happen to have an assistant with me that night, a little exotic dancer, beautiful girl. And I strategically placed her in an advantage point where I said, I just need a few minutes where I can pick this lock and get in there. She stood there. I got behind the bumper. I picked that lock. And I opened that trunk. And I'm looking in, and there's a hockey bag. Now, I unzipped that hockey bag, and Dan... It was loaded with cash. It was just so heavy. I slant over my shoulder, and I'm walking down, and here I am with the hockey bag, all this money, and it was a beautiful feeling. <laughs> that was my best. But it came at some cost, eventually. Eventually, uh, they did catch you, right? Uh, they did, they... Eventually, I uh, was informed on, which I knew right. would be my uh, downfall. Which is which almost is... always the way. Right? Yeah, the for right. guys like me, it is. Yeah. Right. right. And it cost you 14 years, is it? 14, is it... almost 14 so years. Would you, looking back, would you do it again the same way? You know, it's a rhetorical question, philosophical question. Sometimes uh, I say I would, and other times I say... There's no amount of money in the world would I ever do that. But in the meantime, I, I, you know, I had a great time. I had a lot of fun. It, it afforded me a lifestyle sure. that I, I never could afford it. And again, I, I had that rebellious streak in me. I was adrenaline junkie. I loved it. I loved living on the edge. Yeah. And that edge cut me in two. Charles Kennedy. Thank you. So a lot of car trunks in Brooklyn will be broken into tonight, huh? Uh, there's always the guy who's going to get the money that isn't really his money. And then there's the guy who's trying to catch that guy who's always trying to get the money that isn't his money, right? So uh, let's see if you crime town junkies uh, recognize these voices. I almost shaped my whole career on Tony Fiore, to be honest with you. He was assigned to me his whole career. He was just a, a, a rookie patrolman. They promoted him from patrolman to detective to everything they were, all the way up to head of the state police. I made his whole career. Uh, so here are the Sunshine Boys. <laughs> Brian Andrews, the former uh, state police detective commander for Rhode Island. and the former master thief, Tony Fiore. Which one is which? <laughs> All right, so Brian, uh, when was the first time you heard the name uh, Anthony Fiore? Uh, actually, it was Anthony W. Fiore Jr., the... date of birth, January 13th, 1943. <laughs> He lived at 34 Cedar Street in Johnston, Rhode Island. 
and drove a brand new uh, Cadillac with F674 on the registration plate. <laughs> and I first met Tony uh, in 1975. While they were on the run, he and a couple other guys had offloaded one of their stolen tractor-trailer trucks in a wooded location in Cranston, Rhode Island. And um, we were waiting for them down at the bottom of the driveway. And um, I arrested Tony at gunpoint. I met him at the end of my 357 Magnum. That's a lovely story how you two met. <laughs> so, Tony, maybe you have a different version. No, the first time I met Brian was at the uh, looking down the barrel of his pistol down the bottom of that hill. <laughs> he, he looks better without that in front of him, right? <laughs> Um, all right, so then uh, time goes by, and fate brings the two of you together again, right? After uh, Tony served his uh, jail sentence, I began doing surveillance of Tony, of his house. I started off on his street in a van watching the house. Well, I don't know, maybe my first, second, or third night in the van on the street, it was dark out. It was in the winter of 1978. The van pulls up in front of my house, and I'm looking out the window, and it stops. So I'm watching, watching. Nobody gets out of the van. So about 15 minutes later, I said, there's something wrong here. I go out, and I walk towards the van, and the back window's got newspapers on them. They're covered. I said, oh, all right. All of a sudden, my van starts rocking up and down and sideways. It was him and one of his other guys. They made me parked in the van on the street. So they give me the business. They jumped on the bumpers, and they were, they were bouncing around in the van. So I get up on the bumper, I'm jumping, I pull the back door up, and they're sitting in there on stools, you know, looking out the thing. <laughs> you know? So obviously after that, we could no longer watch him from the street. He was on the move. We couldn't follow him. Uh, you know, he was the guy that took me down all the dead-end streets. Um, the only way you could follow Tony was with an airplane. We used to rent airplanes. And we used to put the aircraft up, and the aircraft sometimes would be up on him all day long. And um, he went back to work again. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I went down to the uh, Biltmore Hotel in Providence, and they used to have these uh, jeweler border trade books. You could just take a book, and it had every gold company in the, in the United States in it, and they would have how much they had on hand in gold. So now, I didn't even have to go out and, and look for places for, for gold because all you had to do was look in the book. So now, I see this place that says Vendebeck and Calise. So I go get my friend in, in Boston, which was the alarm guy, and I tell him, I says, I got a place you gotta come and look at down in Rhode Island. We check out the building and we're looking for the wires for the alarm, but they were underground. And uh, they ran, they had a manhole in the woods where the wires ran through. So he goes down there and, you know, over a period of a week, we're reading the wires. And he says, well, you know, I'm pretty sure, you know, I can do this. I can get this alarm. He, I says, well, what we got to do, I'll chop some cables that's in the area. I says, and that's way here, I'm going to knock everybody out, you know, so... Once this alarm's out and I chopped the cables... 60,000 telephones he knocked out of service. <laughs> so I go, and they're right near the building, 
I got a big hatchet and I'm hitting the cable and it's just bouncing off. I mean, because it's a real thick, thick uh, cable. Sparks were coming out. It looked like Fourth of July, you know, and everything. So finally, I get it chopped. Nobody had telephones. Nobody could call anything. I said, well, you know, it's got to go with the, it's part of the game, you know. (laughs) But uh, it really didn't work out that good because they were waiting for us up there. (laughs) Vennebeck and Clays was a refinery with $10 million in gold inside. So they were working working on the alarm system. He's out chopping the cables. And we were in an ambush team outside in the woods. So we had to jump up, state police, FBI, and the chase was on. We chased them in the woods all night long. They had the place surrounded. Now I'm in the woods. So then I end up, you know, walking most of the whole night through the woods. But I was from Rhode Island, so I knew it. And I walked all the way through the woods, and I found a, you know, a restaurant. And I called my friend Charlie Kennedy, and I said, Charlie, I said, I need help. I said, I'm in back of the restaurant. I said, we had a problem. So this was like... Uh, Four o'clock in the morning. He said, I'll be right there. So he, he drove up there and uh, he pulled up and he, you know, he picked me up. And, uh, you know, there was like four of us they didn't get. One guy was from Boston, an old guy at the time. And uh, he comes out of the woods. He's been in the woods, I don't know, a couple of days. And he's bitten up by mosquitoes. He, he was in a swamp. So he sees a building. So he runs into the building to make a phone call. And it was the state police barracks. <laughs> so when he goes into the state police barracks, they looked at him, and that was it. They arrested him. But I got to the restaurant, and, you know, I got away for a short while because they come and arrested me anyway after everything was over. And uh, that was the end of Benderbeck and Calise, you know. And he did his 10 years for it. So, like I told him when they arrested me, I said, well, listen, Brian... No hard feelings. You got a job? I had a job. This was my job, you know. So, you know, what are you going to do? It's kind of beautiful, isn't it, how Crime Town brought the two of you together again? That's uh, Captain Brian Andrews and Tony Fiore. Thank you. Appreciate you having us up here. Enjoyed the New York people. So we're, we're going to take a little break here, uh, an intermission, um, so I can get a beer or something. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. All right, we're going to start the second half of the program. You've probably heard a consistent shout-out to Bill Malinowski. And Bill Malinowski was a longtime reporter at the Providence Journal. And um, as much as I'm 
interested in all this stuff, this history. And it's not really mafia nostalgia to me. It's really just one aspect of the human condition. And the one person uh, with whom I could share all this stuff, all these little details and nicknames and all that stuff, was Bill Malinowski. He was a very close friend of mine. And so as we're sitting here talking about this stuff and listening to these great guests, I think of him. And so he passed away last year, uh, but he's with us in spirit. And his wife, Mary Murphy, and his daughter, Molly, are here. It's a round of applause. wanted to stand up for the underdog and in this situation Raymond was the underdog he had the whole might of the government against him wanting to take this frail old guy with one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel and stick him in prison I mean I, I saw a very different side of him uh, I saw a very sick man who um, felt persecuted um, with you know with some reason, uh, I'm not saying that he was, you know, an angel, but it wasn't my job to decide his guilt or innocence. Dr. Barbara Roberts. Dan, can I ask you a question first? No. Whatever happened to ladies first? <laughs> I have to follow these four consummate acts. They're really hard acts to follow. I'm not criticizing you. <laughs> so, doctor. Well, first of all, just do a little bit of your vitae. You well, know, you your know, credentials. How about that? I went to Case Western Reserve School of Medicine, and I was the second female intern accepted into the internship at University Hospitals of Cleveland. <laughs> I then did a medical residency at Yale New Haven Hospital, and then I spent two years at the National Institutes of Health in the lipid metabolism branch and helped design the first study that proved that lowering cholesterol lowers your risk of cardiac events. Then I went to one of the Harvard teaching hospitals, the Peter Bent Brigham, and I did my cardiology fellowship there. After that, I was... <laughs> in full-time academic medicine for two years on the faculty at Penn State's medical school. And in 1977, I decided to come to Rhode Island and go into private practice, but still maintain an academic uh, position. And I've been on the voluntary faculty at the Brown Medical School since then, and still am to this day. And then on top of that, you have the honorific of the Dr. Broad, Correct. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little about that? The first time I heard myself described as the doctor brought, it was in a phone call from a, a gentleman that I had dated a few years before I became Raymond Sr.'s physician. And he called me and he said, uh, I was talking to one of the guys the other, set, uh, the other day, and he said to me, hey, Vinny, remember that doctor broad you used to go out with? She's the old man's doctor now. And I thought it was hilarious because, to me, abroad was somebody with big tits and no brains, and I was just the opposite. At least I was sure about the, that I didn't have big tits. <laughs> uh, 
I'm trying to figure out how to follow that. Um, you become the go-to doctor for Raymond Sr., right? Yes. So, so you become trusted. Tell us a little bit about how the professional became personal. Was there a blurring of the lines there over the, over the course of those few years? I don't think that there was a blurring of the lines, but I think we... I don't mean ethically. Yeah, no, I, we became close emotionally because we were going through a very unique situation. You know, I took a Hippocratic Oath to put my patient's interest before my own. I didn't take a Hippocratic Oath to only put patients who didn't have a felony record, uh, put their interest ahead of mine, or someone who'd never been accused of a crime. To me, the question of his guilt or innocence was not important. What, what my obligation was to, to keep him alive to the best of my ability, and I was absolutely convinced that the stress of a trial would kill him. And he knew it at some level. I mean, for a long time, I think he had been hiding how sick he really was. I mean, he was the alleged head of the patriarchal crime family. He had to be invincible. You know, we know Raymond Patriarcha from the steel-eyed glare and all the photographs, but you knew him in kind of his domesticity, didn't you? Right. you? You knew him when his guard was a little bit down. Once a week, I would drive out to Johnston, and Rita would make us lunch, and we would sit there and have lunch, and then I would examine him, and and occasionally, to cheer him up, because he was basically on home confinement, uh, occasionally I would bring my youngest daughter, because she was uh, four years old at the time, so she was in nursery school, it was half a day. And she just became very close. She called him Uncle Raymond. Um, but they had two toy poodles, Jabbo and Peppy. <laughs> what were their names? Jabbo and Peppy. <laughs> Do they have records? <laughs> you know, I didn't ask, but oh, yes, it's quite Charles, possible. Charles broke well, them out. Jabbo should have had a record because what Jabbo would do is the minute Megan sat down, he would run up and start humping her leg. <laughs> and Raymond Sr. would get uh, apoplectic. He would be so furious. He would roll up the paper and scream and yell and throw things at the dog and say, Rita, get this dog out of here. Uh, Jabbo survived. Okay. <laughs> and looking back, would you do it all over again? It was highly anxiety-inducing, I think, right? M much of it. But the yes. whole journey of this cardiologist, well-regarded in the medical field, then having this other aspect to her life that wasn't shared by her brother and sister cardiologists, right? No, right? no. Is that safe to say? <laughs> yeah, no. There were, you know, there were physicians who stopped referring me patients because I was taking care of Raymond. But I think that was counterbalanced by all the people who referred themselves to me because they figured if Raymond goes to her, she must be good, so therefore I'm going to go to her. That was good for business? <laughs> that was very good for business, yeah. <laughs> um, did you advertise uh, that no, way? No, no. Um, Although I said that no matter what I wanted it to say, on my gravestone, it would say she was Raymond's doctor. Right, right, right. Thank you very much, Doctor. Dr. Barbara. Just give us a second, we're gonna get some chairs up here. We have some nosy questions uh, from the audience. This one is addressed to Tony. What did you do with the money? Uh, I helped out Atlantic City a lot. <laughs> so, 
just lived it up, but mostly to gambling. You know? uh-huh. Had a few houses, like I had four marriages, so each wife had to get a house. <laughs> That's very kind of you. <laughs> and like I say, it was the cars, the gambling, the partying, just spending it. I mean, it don't really last that long when you think, I mean, you might get 400,000 your end, and then two months later, you're looking for another score. Yeah, I've, I've had that experience. Okay. Uh, this might be a question for, well, pretty much anybody here. Other than being wives, girlfriends, dancers, what was the role of women in organized crime? Why don't women appear on the organization charts? Let's ask Mr. Wallison. I plead the fifth. This is an online question from Patrick. Thank you, Patrick. Um, Did you ever consider going back to your industry after your release? Why didn't you? Tony, would you think that going back to what you specialized in back in the early 90s? There's a big difference from now back then. They're so sophisticated now. The number one problem that you have is the cell phones. Now, you come out of a bank or you're robbing an armored truck, you got people chasing you down the street on a cell phone, <laughs> telling them every street you're on, every move you're on, and there's cameras on every building. It's hard to find a place where there's no cameras or somebody chasing you with the cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> it's so inconsiderate that way. <laughs> I know in my business that uh, foreign exports of weed is uh, is a foregone conclusion. Now there's more marijuana produced domestically, and now the state is set to take that away from guys like me. They took my job. They took my job away, so <laughs> things have changed dramatically on that. Those, I need work. Those sons of bitches. Uh, Mark or Zach... Why does the logo for the show use the State House instead of City Hall? Let's face it, the uh, State House is just a better looking building. <laughs> Largest freestanding dome in the uh, in America, is that right? I think that's what it is. Third in the world. Third in the world. <laughs> it, it's the third in the world what? Largest freestanding dome. And somebody knew that. <laughs> See, Rhode Islanders are proud. God bless you. I, I, I love Rhode Island. You're proud. I love that. And you should be, really. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming to Crime Town. I just want to say thanks to Dan Barry for moderating a great evening. Crimetown is me, Zach Stewart-Pontier, and Mark Smerling. This episode was produced by Rob Zipko, Austin Mitchell, Laura Sim, Drew Nellis, and Kate Parkinson-Morgan. 
This episode of Crime Town was recorded by Nish Nandankar at the Genius Event Space in Brooklyn, New York. It was mixed by Matthew Boll and Bobby Lord. Additional mixing by Enoch Kim, Emma Munger, Martin Peralta, and Kenny Kusiak. Our title track is Run to Your Mama by Goat. Original music by John Ivins, Edwin, and Beanart. Our ad music is by Matthew Boll. Our digital editor is Rob Zipko. Alex Bloomberg is the podfather. He's an adrenaline junkie, loves living on the edge, and that edge cut him in two. This season of Crime Town is dedicated to the memory of Bill Malinowski. Thanks to Dan Barry, The Providence Journal, Julia Haymans, Emily Wiedemann, Ben Gross, Max Kotelchik, Mary Hall, Taylor Hoffman, David Jacobson, and everyone who came to the live show or sent in questions. For a full list of credits, bonus content, and to sign up for our newsletter, visit our website at crimetownshow.com. You can find us on Twitter at Crimetown and on Facebook and Instagram at Crimetown Show. And if you enjoyed Crimetown, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find out about the show. Thanks. Providence is a special place, and we're honored to have told a part of its story. Uh, sorry, the bar's just trying to close out, and they have some cards left, so if you can go to the bar and close out your tab, if anybody else has cards uh, at the bar, if you can go close those out, that'd be great. Thank you.